Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Richard Maharaj, and we're going to be speaking about dry eye misinformation on social media on The OI Show. Well, thank you again for joining us. We're excited to have uh, Dr. Richard Maharaj on, and he is practicing in Toronto. It is awesome to have you on the show. Good to see you, my man. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Appreciate yeah. the uh, the opportunity to chat. I think um, you know we we've uh, we've known of each other for a really long time, but uh, you were generous in inviting me to uh, to a dry eye meeting, and uh, I'm very honored to have gotten to speak at your meeting. And coming up, we've got another meeting that you've invited me to. Um, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your practice. And then, hey, you know, I think we should plug this dry eye meeting that's coming up. Uh, and if you're listening to this after 2022, just know that it usually comes around at the end of the year. And so you'll want to go to it in the future. For sure. Well, thanks, David. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I yeah, practice uh, at the Prism Eye Institute that's just outside of Toronto. And we are a, a surgical medical uh, facility, both ophthalmology and optometry. I run the dry eye and ocular surface division there. Um, and so my previous, this is sort of a recent venture, my previous life was uh, at iLabs. So we ran actually a, a dry eye specific referral center the last decade. Um, and we were the first in Canada as a referral center for ocular surface disease that was optometric centered. So been doing it for a while, seen a lot of dry eye and I've seen everything kind of come and go. Um, you know, part of my other work obviously involves education. You mentioned the Canadian Dry Eye Summit, which is coming up, and we're thrilled to have you again, David. Um, you know, and, and one of my passions really is, is, you know, carving out the education for the masses, you know, and really kind of curating that. And so the Canadian Dry Eye Summit really is a focused meeting for doctors and actually for assistance and we actually have a, a track called the ocular hygienist track to train assistants on assisting their docs with their procedures performing things like you know the various uh, procedure-based uh, therapies in office like lipoflow and ipl and all those other sorts and so we really put together that meeting that's been something i've been working on for the last five years with uh, our other partners dr trevor miranda and dr jeff goodhue so when i'm not doing that i'm doing other consulting work and uh, i have a uh, uh, CSO position at a AI company. So I keep a little bit busy, but I also have a family and I enjoy spending my time with them too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about education a little bit. And, you know, um, when I graduated optometry school, I did my residency, I started digging into the research. And one of the things that I always wanted to be uh, was, you know, an evidence-based optometrist. And, um, you know, as you're leading off a meeting and so forth, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to necessarily with dry eye be evidence-based because there's a lot of stuff that we're thinking about or conceptualizing that's maybe even ahead of the curve, right? I think of radio frequency as a good example. There's not that many studies on yeah. radio frequency, but it seems like some of the best dry eye doctors in the world, in the country, U.S. and Canada, are doing radio frequency. IPL kind of stood in that before, you know, the literature was out there. How do you how do you kind of think about that as somebody who puts on a meeting, you know, and 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 how do we educate people around this? That's such an important point. I think you you hit the nail on the head in that 
you know, the, the pace at which we are gaining knowledge and the pace at which we are able to demonstrate that knowledge scientifically uh, is becoming more and more disproportionate. The gap is widening. And so I think it's a balance, right? It's a balance between like you, you brought up IPL and I think it's a great example whereby, you know, we start with the lowest basis of evidence, which is anecdotal and we grow mm -hmm. from there case reporting, eventually we do clinical trials and eventually we get to an RCT. Um, the challenge, of course, is that you can't always wait for that data to, to emerge before you make a decision because as you and I have both discussed and, and chatted about, many of those uh, of us on a podium or that are writing papers tend to also be the ones that want the new fancy toys the first and, and, and really are cutting edge. And so it does become a challenge between balancing those things out. I think, you know, and I, I'm not certainly a, a fortune teller or have a crystal ball, but I do see the dry space as one of those particularly uh, unique spaces where we will continue to have this problem of, you know, the discrepancy between the evidence and the existing uh, modalities of care. I think if we continue, though, to be uh, critically uh, aware of where the shortcomings are and radio frequency, I think is a perfect example because it is very popular right now. And it's also geographically popular, right? I think there's regions where there's not even one system and then there's regions where there's a hundred. Um, and so I think that is something that we always have to keep in balance and keeping our eye on the critical appraisal, the scientific uh, evidence uh, base for it, but also attend a meeting, chat with a colleague. You know, you and I are chatting here today and we'll probably discover a few things that we hadn't seen or thought of. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where we have to kind of guide ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I literally, while you were talking, just looked this up. And as of March, 2022, I ran these numbers. I went and looked in the literature. Radio frequency has six articles published. Intense yeah. pulse light, 102. Low light level therapy, uh, 17 yeah. and thermal pulsation 130 um and and you know some of those are are now there's tons of things coming out about them and i think that you kind of nailed it on the head where you know we, we start off with kind of the foundational and work our way up and as you tend a meeting you get to hear about what other people are doing and i think that uh i think that the beauty about the meetings yours as a prime example is you're bringing in people who are experts in these particular arenas that know what those therapies should be doing and can speak to the positives and maybe the shortcomings of them. And I think, you know, more and more we're starting to struggle with this because of social media is being something where, you know, do you give credit to this person who you like on social media or do you give credit to this person who's speaking at an optometry conference who, you know, has a credibility as being somebody who's done this sort of thing for a long period of time? And I think that's a challenge that we encounter today. Uh, would, would you agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, that's an important point, which is, you know, the, the distribution of education, right? We, we, we uh, take it in through meetings. We take it in through readings. We take it in through writing. We take it in through uh, conversations with our colleagues in the office, but I'd be, we'd certainly be remiss to not mention that a lot of practitioners are taking it in through social media. And these are usually, you know, a few seconds clips or a few minute clips. And, and certainly there's, this is not a, a, 
meant to be, um, you know, disparaging in that regard. But some of that information is popular because it's popular and not <laughs> yeah. always grounded in science. Not always. Yeah. Sometimes it is. But when it's popular, boy, does it spread like wildfire. And it's kind of hard to put the rabbit back in the hat in a lot of those yeah. cases, right? So yeah. I, I think that's something that we we always have to be cognizant of is what are we surrounding ourselves with and ingesting and how is that influencing our clinical habits, our recommendations, our, our modality of care, basically. Yeah. You know, and, and some of the people that are on the podium that are speaking, that are writing are also the ones that are publishing some of that stuff online and we can look to them. Um, and you know, it, it kind of comes down to the level of the, the, the level of the content is if I'm going to go out and do a lecture, um, most of the time I've had to submit an outline that somebody looks through and agrees that this is, you know, somewhat scientific. If I go out and do a writing, uh, usually there's at least one, if not two or three people that have read it. And uh, I mean, if you you and I both know, if we write an article and something isn't cited, they say, hey, where's the citation for this? Where's the evidence and the proof? And with social media, we don't necessarily have that. So I think what you and I may agree to is that when we do see things that are new or somewhat innovative on social media, we probably need to go and look it up somewhere else and see where the evidence is coming from that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Uh... That that's it. And I think if there's anything that, you know, folks that are kind of ingesting education through these mediums, it is that is to is to double check and to, you know, we can have the utmost respect. I have the utmost respect to you, David. And if you said something to me, I'd be like, wow, you know what? That is interesting. And what I'm going to do after is I'm actually going to go and read up on it. Not because I right. doubt you, but because it's interesting. <laughs> no, but you should. I mean, we should always take it with a grain of salt, right? I mean, that's we could, right. That's we exactly try right. So, yeah. That but critical it kind of appraisal. Also, yeah, I think that's a key point is, uh, you know, appraising and also making sure that it makes sense on the on the science side of things with what's happening to, to patients. Now, one of these topics that I think you and I probably might agree upon is um, I was asked by a company um, to do an assessment of 30,000 mybographies. And to grade 30,000 of them, I'm a little behind, but uh, we've been <laughs> grading these mybographies um, for this project that they're working on. And, you know, the, I look at mybography every day. I know you have for 10 years. And um, I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of story in the mybography story, right? There's a lot yeah. of things that we have uh, as far as, hey, look at a mybography. If it looks perfect and the patient's fine. Another story is, hey, what do you do if the mybography is is gone? Does that mean the patient is doomed and uh, we should bury it? You should dig a grave for them. How how do you kind of interpret some of that stuff? And how, you know, you see mybographies every day. Like, what's the story that you tell yourself in your head? Yeah, no, I think. Well, first of all, sorry that you got to go through thirty thousand of those. If you're having trouble sleeping, I'm sure uh, that may be <laughs> the cure. Um, but, uh, yeah, you raise a good point. I think that example of my biography is very valid. You know, um, the examples of, you know, a patient, for example, having very few visible glands on my biography. Well, we have to also consider well, what are the limitations of that technology to begin with, right? We knew the earth was flat until it wasn't flat, right? right? So <laughs> we, we know something until we don't know. It. And so the limitations of my biography you know, we use infrared lighting and deep red lighting that'll penetrate a certain depth, 
but the imaging uh, quality is affected by, you know, edema in the tissue, papillary response, pigment in the tissue, all of these things create variability. We really need to make sure that we're not uh, uh, over-promising or under-promising in those cases, what it means to the entire clinical picture. And so I've always said this, you know, the, the morphology of the meibomian glands is important but as is the function of those glands, right? So how do they express? You'd be surprised. And David, I'm sure you've seen this where you have glands that appear to be absent and you squeeze, oil comes out. And where is that oil coming from? I mean, there's cross channels, there's periductal fibrosis. I mean, there's there's a ton of variables in there. So I don't like to hang my hat on any one finding. As you know, the the surface of the eye, I mean, it's, it's a system, right? And with every system, there's push and pull. There's an immunological basis. There's a neurosensory basis. And so you know, I can't look at a mybography alone and exclusivity and hang my hat on it for that reason. Right. The second reason that I also kind of pull back a little bit is because our patients also hang their hat on that. And if you go to any dry eye forum, you're going to hear or read, sorry, a lot of patients saying, oh, I looked at my mybography and my doctor said I had no glands left. And then that builds on the anxiety. And the reality is, what does that actually mean? And do we yeah. know what it means? And I'd yeah. say that we don't yet know what that means. No, we we certainly don't. You know, there's a there's an interesting uh, revelation, and 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 I know you know this guy as well as I do. But Art Epstein um, was saying for quite a while that um, you know he, he could revive dead meibomian glands, and Art is a, a close friend of mine. And I'm like, Art, dead is dead, right? Unless the good Lord brings you back from the dead, you're dead. And uh, lo and behold, I have to admit that, um, you know, maybe it wasn't dead. And uh, we're starting to see, you know, in in some cases where we look at mybographies before and after treatment, and sometimes we see that, hey, it looks like that mybography might be getting a little bit better. And you bring up the point about the imaging and maybe some limitations of the imaging that we have. And uh, I don't think we're taking a grade four atrophy to a grade zero atrophy, right? It's it's not necessarily getting completely better. And uh, Luminous has done some studies on on showing the gland morphology improving, you know, after mm-hmm. maybe a treatment, so uh, or several treatments. So I I think you're you're dead on that. We've got a lot of things that we don't know. As my good friend uh, Carolyn Blackie says, is we've got a lot of story. Yeah. behind uh behind my bomian glands and uh the science continues to to prove that stuff for us and um this that's what an example of maybe we're ahead of things and that rudder is driving us where we need to go and, and how we're thinking of are there other examples in in your practice after having done this for this long where you're either appreciating uh a a, a test or a treatment more the longer you do it or you're devaluing something that you used to put a lot of credit into? That's a really great question, David. You know, one of the things, again, technology is amazing, and I always like to be on the cutting edge, but I have always found that conjunctival staining is, has been, and probably will always be one of my good friends. (laughs) You know, staining that conge, particularly the superior conge, looking for an SLK pattern or just superior conge staining, has always been very revealing to me. And in some cases it has guided the entire path of treatment um, because that can tell you whether there is, you know, a frictional aspect to their inflammation, uh, i.e. mechanical, whether there is goblet cell 
uh, uh, density loss. So I'm going to reach for a cyclosporine agent or a lifidograss. Um, but that's a sweet spot that I've always relied on. The second thing that, again, I didn't really uh, lean on too heavily before was, you know, the disparity between signs and symptoms as we talk more and more about neurosensory involvement in the dry eye cascade, right? So we have our neurotrophic and our neuropathic patients. I was always aware of that, of that uh, disproportion between signs and symptoms, but have become, and perhaps as my practice has matured and we've, we've adapted more and more complex cases, uh, we have the largest Sjogren's population in, in Canada just in our clinic alone. And that's to say something about the impact of the disease on the neurosensory component. So I really uh, like to lean heavily on the validated symptom score and the clinical picture. And again, those are very low tech things that are available to everyone. As long as you have either a printer or a digital intake system, you get a symptom score. You look at that patient's eye, does it line up? And if it doesn't, why? Right. Our, our students love to answer that question. I think that's a question that we should always be asking. So yeah. those are two really uh, low tech, but I think incredibly useful uh, diagnostic things that I, I, I lean on every day. Yeah. So I, I've, I've said this for, for, for years and um, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, an outcast in, in, in the arena of, I just think we should stop thinking about symptoms altogether. Right. It's one of the, the least guiding components mm. of uh, of true scientific dry eye because the nerves of the cornea lie all the time. And so when symptoms become valuable is exactly what you said when it's in a validated uh, questionnaire because then it becomes an objective measurement. It's an objective measurement that then we can be guided from time to time to always test back to. Whereas mm. if you say to the patient, how do you feel today? Um, whether their dog died or they won the lottery, their eyes feel different, right? But yeah. those objective measurements in those in those questionnaires are really are really helpful. Um, and you know, I'll speak to a, a, a diagnostic component that I used to give a lot of value to, but I I really don't much anymore. And that is tear breakup time, mm. and that's probably the number one thing that so many doctors rely on. And conjunctival staining. I'm, I mean, I knew that you and I were were uh, you know were good friends because of that. I'm I'm all over that with you, but tear breakup time it doesn't tell me what to do. Yeah. It just tells me something's wrong, but it doesn't yeah. tell me what to do. Now, the more I watch and observe tra- tear breakup time, I might observe what type of dry eye it is, but just as a whole in a number, there's so many other things that would guide me in where I should go, right? If the meibomian glands are not secreting, I know that I need to do meibomian gland treatment. If there's conjunctival uh, staining, or if there's inflammatory marker that's elevated, those things tell me how to go about my treatment. And tear breakup time just is not my favorite. Yeah, I agree. I actually think that tear breakup time, I think, is a valuable tool to teach with for new students to look at with a breakup pattern to kind of understand if it's happening in, in different areas of the cornea, what it means. Mm-hmm. But I completely agree with you. After a while, it's great to teach and to kind of skill yourself up. But when you start to do this on a regular basis, it becomes less and less valuable as a metric to yeah. direct therapy. 100% yeah. agree. 
So what's uh, what's exciting? Uh, over ten years, you have something new and exciting every year that is uh, is jazzing you back into the world of dry eye. Um, it's a new diagnostic. It's a new treatment. It's a new concept. It's a new theory. What is it right now that's driving you to want to be a better dry eye doctor? I, to be honest, it's the innovation. Really, it's the innovation and the interest um, from our colleagues, but the innovation, particularly in the neurosensory space. Mm. I think, to me, right now, I think that is the most most important uh, uh, aspect. It's it's perhaps one of the most untapped uh, uh, components of our therapeutic uh, opportunities. So, I think looking at you know the the Oxervate and and uh, nerve growth factor recombinants biologics. Um, and some of the new stuff, the tripmate receptors coming out. Uh, I know there's some clinical trials uh, ongoing in the States right now. We're, we're getting involved in some up here at the PRISM. So that space right now is really, really uh, exciting to me because I think it will, by its own nature, open up our interests. You know, you and I both know that whenever a, a, a new product comes to market, it opens up a new opportunity to educate uh, uh, ourselves and our peers. And so in that, it's almost as if the market sometimes drives the interest. So right now, it doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of, of marketing behind it, but there's a lot of interest. That tells me that this is an area that's going to really explode. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm super excited about that. I mean, at this point, our practice is, is, is fairly heavy in terms of uh, using biologics and um, uh, amniotic membranes and things like that. But I really do want to get more. Uh, or see more targeted therapies in this arena. And I think that we're getting there. I think that we're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, that once we get deeper into this neurosensory component, uh, you know, our, our, our good friend, Laura Perriman, yeah. she's just so smart. And when she starts talking about it, I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. She's, she's just so smart. And I know she's going to be at the summit. Um, yeah. But, uh, but you know, the deeper we get into this, the more we really have to start digging back into the pathophysiology and, and really get to understand it. But I agree with you. I think this is an, a component. And, and as I've started to dig into it myself, uh, neurotrophic keratitis, when we think about that, that's being end stage disease is where we typically think that. <clears throat> but I really think that the beginning of dry eye is 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 we're on a we're on a slot a slope right it's not that one day you become neurotrophic and then the the day before you didn't it is a glide towards that and why is the why is the ocular surface not producing the appropriate tear quality well mm -hmm. it's because the neurosensory component is really breaking down with regards to that have uh have you got a chance to uh to to, to get a Conet Boucher anesthesiometer in your practice yet? No, no, I had one on loan. We were doing a study. I had one on loan for a while, but no, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I rely on the the old cotton, the cotton, cotton wisp. wisp. Um, but you know, Jake it. Jake Lang. Uh, I know he did a, a, a brief video on uh, using um, hypertonic uh, uh, salt solution, if I recall correctly, um, uh, and there was a paper. That was published on this where you you instill i think it was a five percent uh nacl solution that you instill and you measure a response to the sting it seems to be a little 
<laughs> a little rough on our patients. But anyways, apparently uh, that that's another way to do it. Although I don't think uh-huh. I'm going to be leading on that too, too heavily. Yeah. Well, if, 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 those of you who are listening don't know a cochet bonnet anesthesiometer. It's uh, it looks like a big pen, and it's got a a string kind of like a fishing line that sticks out from it, and then you poke the patient in the eye with the fishing string uh, at its fullest extent, and then if they don't feel it, you pull it back, pull it back, and then there's a number that's calibrated so you can gauge what that is. And uh, you know the instrument's like five hundred dollars, and it has come in really handy when I wanted to gauge the uh, extent of the discomfort, right? I mean, I had a patient on Oxervate and she was at a three, uh, which means that it was pulled back the, 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 the least sensitive, like where everybody else would be, you and me would be at a six. She mm-hmm. was at a three, we did Oxervate and then she was at a five and a half. And so I was able to gauge that and see that although she may not be all the way back to normal, I could gauge that number. And it was something I bought years ago because my resident wanted it. And I stuck it in the cupboard for two years and then we pulled it out recently and it's been a lot of fun. So I think you're dead spot on with uh, neurosensory being a big component here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, man, if you can, if you ever have a, a time to ship that up here to Canada, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, give, it, I'll give it a whirl. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, it has been great talking with you. Some really fun uh, things that we uh, we highlighted here. I appreciate you spending some time on the OI show. Hey, listen, thanks for having me. I really uh, appreciate the conversation as well. We really do look forward to you coming to the Dry Eye Summit. Um, quick plug. I mean, I'll let everybody know if they want to go to dryeyesummit.ca uh, for live tickets. The ocular hygienist program is actually sold out. We added a second day and it's sold out within, I don't know, two days. So, uh, but we will probably have more digital content for your assistants if you want to get them trained up online, but we look forward to seeing you. I can't wait to get you up here in the great white North. There could be some snow on the ground at that time. You never know. Yeah. yeah. So uh, dress warmly. That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you for hanging out with us and thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of the OI show. Make sure to like and subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes for other amazing guests like the one we had today. 